This is one of those mornings where everyone's just like happily chatting. And I just feel like anything that we have to say in this little bit is just going to ruin happy chatting. So maybe we should have just stuck with happy chatting. But anyway, I've interrupted you now. It's got all awkward. <laughs> you won't be able to pick up where you left off. But my name is Shane. My pronouns are he, him. I feel extraordinarily loud. Um, I don't know if I am. Am I loud or is it just to me? Oh, so we've got some nods and some shakes. Okay, this is all very confusing. Um, so, this is supposed to be a short Sunday, and um, what worries me for short Sundays is uh, this is a Sunday that kind of like flows off last Sunday, but if you weren't here last Sunday, then you're going to have no idea what's going on. So I'm going to try and give like a, a tiny praises of last Sunday without taking up all the time, and then say some new stuff. Um, we have been talking about Jesus as the failed Messiah, um, in our series called Another Story. And the Another Story series is really just about what it might be to see this community as a community that um, follows Jesus as a wisdom tradition. Um, wisdom traditions are traditions of wise paths that have rituals and practices that help reinforce a particular way of life um, and help people follow it together. And so rather than talking about um, faith as a kind of like super binary belief system, um, thinking about uh, our community as a community which attempts to live well together um, and see the story as Jesus see the story of Jesus as a path which we might follow so um, one of the things I talked about last week is that how much I appreciate um, my faith journey of my childhood, which I don't talk about how much I appreciate it very often because it involves a lot of trauma. <laughs> but um, one of the things I actually really love about it is that it just prepared me for not fitting in in the world. Um, and in lots of ways, in a really good way. Um, I shared last week that Despite appearances, I was a really dorky kid. I know it's hard to believe. Um, and used to get beaten up a lot. Definitely didn't fit in. Definitely had way too loud a smart mouth for uh, the size of my uh, 35 kg body. Um, and, but there was something in my faith tradition that kind of prepared me for the fact that um, I grew up in the Christianity before Christianity tried to become cool. <laughs> Uh, and that was a real blessing in lots of ways because um, I, I, did, I never really expected that my faith would make me like, uh, would help me out um, in other people's opinions. <laughs> I was kind of prepared for the fact that my faith would make me like a little bit of an edgy outsider, um, you know, super, super cool in my own way, in a way that no one else would understand. Um, <laughs> but what it prepared me for in lots of ways is... Um, is that it's okay to think about your place in the world. It's okay to challenge the big narratives and the big systems. It's okay not to fit in. And it's okay to fail in some people's eyes. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that your life is a write-off. Um, we had a look at Jesus last week and the kind of narrative. One moment. We're talking about Jesus just as the failed Messiah, about how lots of people had lots of expectations um, about about who Jesus was going to be, about what the Messiah was supposed to be, about exactly what um, the role of Israel was in the world, what God was going to do. You've got a bunch of desperate people living under the Roman Empire hoping that a Messiah would come and turn everything upside down. And 
for lots of people, their interpretation of that was that it was going to be a violent revolution, um, that Jesus would be a kind of like King David slash Judas the Hammer. Um, if you don't get that reference, you'll need to listen to last week because I can't go and do it again. Um, there's someone who would kind of lead a violent revolt, overthrow Rome, um, Rome and the empire, and make everyone believe that um, Israel was just the bee's knees and um, say, wow, why can't we be, be as cool as them? Um, Jesus didn't do that. And we talked last week about uh, even just the Magnificat with Mary's song about Jesus kind of like setting the stage for Jesus' life and the way that Mary's song kind of set Jesus up to be this kind of like empire overthrowing one. Um, So Jesus grew up with kind of this pressure and these expectations, but somehow found a way of being faithful to that story, but also transforming it at the same time. So just kind of by way of example, I've just highlighted a little bit of Mary's um, amazing revolutionary song, which is kind of like one of our favorite bits of the Bible. Um, And this bit here, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. And so for some... um, People, the idea of the, the vision of the Messiah was that he would be the one to turn Israel into the empire that dominated all the other empires. Um, yet Jesus, kind of like in his practice and in his way, um, did quite the opposite a lot of the time. Um, didn't really foster gathering larger and larger crowds at all times. A lot of the time, people were really disappointed and annoyed at what he had to say and went away. Um, a lot of the time, he got abandoned. Other times, people tried to throw him off cliffs because they weren't very happy with what he had to say. And he clearly wasn't trying to lead like a populist movement in the sense of, if only I could get everyone behind me, then we could um, do some real violence and take over. Um, and just in these like, couple of little passages here, um, does someone want to read these for me? Because it'll help break up my monotonous drone. Thanks, Jackie. Okay. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. So normally we do like a practice called I notice and I wonder at this point where we kind of reflect on what we see in the text. But we try not to do too much discussion on short Sundays, because the FNC snowball takes over um, and it never ends, and then it's lunchtime (laughs) lunchtime all of a sudden. I just wanted to point out with these two things of um, giving, um, filling the hungry with good things, and then bringing down the mighty from their thrones. 
filling the hungry with good things and bringing down the mighty from their thrones. It feels to me like throughout the narratives of Jesus that the gospel authors try to highlight is that Jesus again and again is looking to fill the hungry with good things. There's lots of feeding stories. There's lots of feeding narratives. There's lots of flowing wine. There's lots of partying with outsiders. This attention to those who sit at the bottom of society um, and this real concern for like people's physical and practical and social needs is just always present in the ministry of Jesus. Yet when the opportunity comes to like get some swords out and start hacking some people away, this is in the Garden of Geth- Gethsemane where um, the kind of like temple guard came um, to deliver Jesus up to the Romans. When it came time to kind of like overthrow the mighty with might, um, and you kind of like it's in Jerusalem. There's a festival going on. It's a hotbed of activity and excitement. This would have been the perfect time to start a violent revolution. It would be the perfect time for the people who wanted Jesus to step up and um, and bring the swords out for Jesus to to act now um, and save himself from the cross. And Jesus at this point takes another approach to bringing down rulers and empires. Um, and in the end, as we discussed last week, Jesus was the failed Messiah. There is no such thing in kind of Jewish thought as a dead Messiah. <laughs> if you're dead, it means that you're not the Messiah. Yet the gospel authors talked about Jesus as being vindicated, as the resurrection being an, God's affirmation of Jesus' life and Jesus' way. Um, And so for us here in our context, I just want to introduce the idea of um, what we do with the big stories of the world, what we do with the um, narratives that have been um, cast upon us of what people expect from us. And just think that maybe part of our job as people who seek to follow um, Jesus as a wisdom tradition is to be prepared and to be okay that by some metrics will be failures. And that's difficult, but that's okay. Um, so hold that in your head, if you can. Um, one of the interesting stories that's come up again and again as I've sat with this community um, over the last kind of decade is that this is a community who for lots of people have kind of either arrived here in the middle of or post some kind of faith reconstruction. Um, And for lots of people that's meant that at some point, either years ago or recently or in the midst, that they've left high control faith communities um, where actually leaving the faith communities that they've been a part of has been a massive and radical identity shift for them, Um, where they've kind of been held in this container, and that container held lots of really good things, but some not-so-great things too, Um, and leaving was kind of really high stakes. And one of the conversations I've had over and over and over again is people um, who have found their way to this community after leaving faith altogether years ago and then kind of wandering back in and around it, um, kind of just very cautiously dipping a toe in. Um, And there's a sense for lots of those people that their experience was out of the frying pan into the fire in that leaving a higher control 
um, but high community um, collective, like the churches lots of us have come from, where it is our entire world, there's lots of support, there's lots of inclusion, there's lots of love, there's lots of um, the great things about being on the inside of something in an us and them kind of world, and then leaving it and kind of being thrown into autonomous individualism, um, which is kind of hard to describe, but into more fluid kinds of communities, into kinds of ways of being where there's a lot of freedom, um, but there's not necessarily the same support as the places that we've come from. Um, where we come from places where there's a really narrow definition of what it is to fit and to not fit, but then leaving that feeling like, oh, I can be anything I want to be, but it's now hard to exactly know what that is um, and how that is a positive experience. So expressions people have used of things like feeling free but untethered, of finding it hard to know their place in the world, to know what's pursuing, being encouraged to pursue greatness and to achieve, but feeling tired of the hustle and struggling to set boundaries, feeling free to create ourselves, but struggling to know what to make, to make ourselves into, feeling surrounded by a rotating cast of friends, but being terrified of being a burden on anyone. So feeling like you've got lots of um, connections, but not all the support that we need. Um, and as I referenced last week, my study, for some of you who have been around for a while, I'm probably really sick of hearing about this. Um, <laughs> but my studies lead me to believe there's very good reasons for these feelings. But just like when we're in a high-control religion, it's really hard to see from the inside. Um, we've moved from high-control collectives to low-obligation autonomy. And a guy who I'm drawing on a lot, um, and some of my thinking is this guy, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, and he is a therapist um, who dabbles in theology and sociology and economics. Um, and his way of describing this experience is to say that the big story, and it's not the only story, it's in a, it's competing with all of these other stories about our lives, but the big story of the West and the one that we keep on returning to is capitalism as social imaginary. <laughs> so he basically says the logic of capitalism, the economic system that we primarily live under, has become what he calls a social imaginary. And a social imaginary, um, there's lots of technical ways of describing it, but just imagine that it's the default way that we think about the world that it becomes a thing that we define all the other things by. Um, and for those of us who have come from high-control collectives and um, faith communities, we'll kind of understand some parallels there and that it becomes the kind of default background truth of the way that the world works. Um, but just like um, the faith communities that we've grown up in, the kinds of religion that we've grown up in, when you're in it, it's really hard to see and to pick apart. Um, so I'm just going to really give a really rough description of the way that capitalism sees the world. Um, and this isn't necessarily an attack. I, I don't, I'm not doing an economics lecture here <laughs> where I'm trying to promote socialism or communism or um, all kinds of other isms against capitalism as an economic system. I've got lots of thoughts about that. This is not the morning for it. What I am trying to do is um, articulate how he describes it has kind of become a part of our imagination as the default good in the world. 
and the, the default logic in the world. So capitalism describes humans as autonomous slash independent individuals who are in competition with each other to produce and consume. And that is the story of the world. So originally, it was just a way of describing, under Adam Smith, back in the 1700s, how nations might become wealthier. It was an argument for kind of pre-slash-mid-industrial revolution, how countries can become wealthier and we can all gain through being wealthier, which is, doesn't sound like a terrible idea. But what's happened to it is that we now kind of take it as describing the world as it is. So in this world, in the story of the world, production is power and production is prestige. Your value is dictated by what you can produce. Life is a competition and survival of the fittest creates the most efficient systems. The best products, the best businesses, and ultimately the best people survive, and they are the ones that are worthy of surviving. And it's when you get that bleed from economic system into how we view humans that we start to get into what I think that Bruce Rogers Vaughan describes as the trouble with this thing. As that you can understand that if you're looking purely at the market, at businesses, at um, production, at all of these things, it should be the best products that survive. It should be the best businesses, the best systems that survive. But when that begins to bleed into how we see each other and what we owe each other, that's when we get into some dark places. <laughs> um, capitalism trusts that we're all self-interested, so we'll be able to compete to get the best deal for ourselves. And this story leads to practices, practices that can, can achieve amazing things, but also come with a cost to our bodies our communities, and our planet. Effectively, the narrative of cap capitalism wants to make us more productive, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but there's kind of two, we'll just stick with two for this morning, two major concerns with this. Um, one, capitalism doesn't have a handbrake. <laughs> so capitalism is an infinite growth machine, which essentially says that this, the narrative of capitalism is more is better all the time. There is always more. There's more to produce, there's more to consume, there's always more. In the logic of capitalism, there's no handbrake. There's no good time to stop producing or stop consuming unless it's going to slow down production and consumption later on. So one of the ways we see rest is rest can be justified in our imagination if it's because we've been working really hard or to prepare for working really hard. So that's when you're allowed to rest, okay? So you can rest, self-care, resting, taking care of yourself, but you have to do it by saying it's because I've worked myself to the bone and I'm going to collapse soon and I won't be able to produce in the future if I don't look after myself. And because my body is a production machine, I'm now going to rest lest I break it for the future. Um, or I've got a lot of work coming up. I need to rest now so that. But the end goal of rest isn't rest and being. It's production. So this is one of the ways in which capitalism is kind of like seeped into our logic. Um, so the first thing is there's no handbrake. And the second is that what's deemed productive misses some pretty major stuff. Um, again, I'm not going to get into like how the economic policy and, and, and thinking really came about and kind of focus more onto how it's bled, bled into us. But 
production and what it is to produce and to be of value in the world doesn't cover a whole bunch of things. The first thing it doesn't cover is care, <laughs> as in non-financially rewarded marketplace care. This big story doesn't pay attention to who is looking after babies, who is looking after the elderly, who is looking after the sick, who is looking after, unless it's a profession which you're being financially rewarded for. Care, the growth and um, flourishing of communities and collectives and connection and all of those things don't really fit in this system. Um, and it doesn't know how to value what or who isn't productive. So we struggle with that too. Um, its best alternative is to turn everything into a competition or a product. Because if ultimately we're competing, then everything should be a competition. I have a friend um, who's a musician who has long drunk rants about American Idol, um, <laughs> which are very interesting, but mostly because he, and I've never really thought about this before, but he thinks that it's sacrilegious <laughs> to have music competitions. Because it's like art is not and cannot, there is no such thing as the best art. You cannot pit them against each other. It destroys what art is. It destroys the beauty of it. Commentate on it. Listen to it. Discuss it. All of those things. But don't have a number one. Beauty should never be a competition. But under capitalism, we don't really know how else to think of it unless we can categorize it as being in competition with something else. Under capitalism, care and community is worth less than production. So we fit it around productivity. Care is rarely visible or rewarded. And sometimes it's only rewarded when it's in addition to great achievements. So if you are a powerhouse businesswoman that got to the top and still looks after your kids and cares for your family, then that care is rewarded because you managed to do it in a way that didn't get in the way of production. Um, if you're a dad that's a CEO, yet occasionally sees his kids, <laughs> but he's not on the golf course. Wow, what a great guy. Like, we don't really know how to value and talk about care in a way that doesn't contrast it or, or have it in the same conversation of, yeah, but what are you really doing with your life? And so, so often in the way we construct our communities, care falls to the least powerful people. So the logic behind all of this is that production is the thing we ought to all be aiming for. And so it's the people who have the least capacity for production that become the ones that get left with the care, which is nice, but there's no prestige with it. There's no value to it. It's not actually really a thing. And so the metric of caring for ourselves fits into the same thing. If we are to care for ourselves, it has to be towards becoming an actual contributor to society. So, one of the ways I think about this community 
I, I think capitalism as a, as a social imaginary is destroying us. <laughs> um, I think it's destroying our planet. I think it's destroying our bodies. I think it's destroying our communities. Um, I think that this logic achieves some particular things really well and leaves others um, in great peril. And I think it's really, really hard to resist. Um, and I think the only way of resisting it is being prepared to be a failure. Um, and in that I'm not saying I think that no one should succeed under capitalism and no one should think about production or work. Um, I think that universalizing stories is a really dangerous thing, thing to do um, for lots of reasons. Um, one being even the way that gender plays out in these stories of who gets rewarded for what, who gets to participate in what, who gives up what in order to care and a whole bunch of those things that we might talk about next week. But one of the things I want to kind of sit with today and going into next week is what happens if we change the big story from life as production, life as competition, life as endless growth to life as gift, life as care. Um, because I think that those two, thing, those two conversations create very different ways of being in the world and I think they ultimately create different worlds. Um, I talked a little bit last week about how um, we all know that religion can be a coercive force um, and it took me I think I, used, I was raised on thinking that religion was uniquely a positive source in the world <laughs> um, the longer you sit with um, sexual abuse cover-ups and um, the ways that leaders have abused power, um, the way that religion has controlled lives in really detrimental ways, the more you begin to think that religion can only be a force for control. Um, but in other contexts and other places, religion has, been, has the capacity to be a liberative force. Um, and I have gone through that journey of going, religion is all good, religion is all bad, um, and have returned to a place of going, I think we actually sometimes, I, I think capitalism as a religion is quite dangerous too and needs some sources outside of itself which might ask hard questions of it. And in the way of Jesus, I've found, I've found that the life of Jesus has asked questions of the big story that we live under. And one of them is to ask who deserves love. Because I think capitalism really struggles to answer that without saying productive people deserve love. Productive people deserve care. Um, I'm going to read a poem for you in a moment, but I want to ask what the Jesus story has to offer us about the question of who deserves care, who owes care, and where does our worth come from, if not productivity? Because I think that I would love, and I think this community is a community of deep care and deep connection. Um, I think this community is learning to work out what it is to actually owe each other something, which is... Um, 
those are really dangerous words um, in a context where freedom and autonomy is our ultimate goal. Um, I think this community is wrestling it, what it is to owe each other care, to be um, connected to each other and responsible for each other in ways that aren't coercive and controlling. I think it's a really difficult thing to do. Um, yeah, so... I'm going to read a poem by um, David Gate, who I read a couple of poems from last week. And I just want to sit with it together before we eat and drink. Um, if you like, you can close your eyes. If you're a closed eyes poetry person, if you're a read it off the screen person, read it off the screen. Does a bird deserve to fly? Or a fish deserve to swim? That's how ridiculous we sound whenever we ask, do I deserve to be loved? You were created for love. It's the reason you are here, to give love and receive it. It's your purpose. Deserve doesn't come into it. Does a bird deserve to fly? Or a fish deserve to swim? That's how ridiculous we sound whenever we ask, do I deserve to be loved? You were created for love. It's the reason you are here. To give love and receive it. It's your purpose. Deserve doesn't come into it. Loving God, Help us to imagine together what life would look like if our deepest story is that all deserve love, that all deserve care. Help us to wrestle with the difficult questions about what that means, about what we owe each other, about who needs to love and who needs to care, about what might happen to our world if these were the big questions. Amen. Amen.